0: Okay, let's start with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do give praise to your name for the great opportunity we have to come and to look into the words of Ezekiel again this morning. Thank you for how your scripture has given us a clear picture of what is yet to be. Lord, we uh, are so blessed to be able to come together as the body of Christ Pray that we would strengthen one another, edify one another, and that our study of the word would strengthen us in our faith and give us the right perspective in which to see this world and then to live according to it. May you be given glory in this place today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. This is week number 44 in our study and this Today will mark a significant milestone, I think, as we come to the end of our study in Ezekiel. So, um, we've been 44 weeks walking through, all the way from Genesis, through um, this book of Ezekiel. And you'll remember that, I mean, the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel we took very quickly, um, as we just looked at how Ezekiel was talking about The impending doom uh, for Israel, well, for Judah, really. And in that, um, we went very quickly. And not only did Nebuchadnezzar destroy Israel, but he also destroyed all the lands around Israel, all the way, really, all of the Middle East, and pushed down even into Egypt, taking all of those lands and taking them captive and leaving them desolate. But then beginning in chapter 34, we've slowed down. We've gone verse by verse because from 34 through 48 is what I believe is the future kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ that's detailed over in Revelation chapter 20. And we even saw in verses, chapters 38 and 39, the war that's detailed in Revelation 20 after the millennial reign. All of that is contained in this book of Ezekiel. And if you don't study Ezekiel, you lose perspective of all those things. Um, Because only here, other than Revelation 20, are these things spoken of. And so we've taken our time and gone slowly through this, mainly so we can see what happens to the land of Israel that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's been our focus, that's been our reason for going through all of this, and we'll talk a little bit about that at the end today. So we look very quickly at the end of chapter 47 last week, where in the last 10 verses or so, God um, describes the land that is going to be Israel's during the Millennial Kingdom. And he gives the very specific outline of those lands and um, just kind of lays it out there. And then, I know you understand this, but Jacob, who was renamed Israel, had 12 sons. And those 12 sons are the tribes of Israel. But when you look at the details, even here at the end, there are 13 tribes. Because David was given a double portion, um, his sons Manasseh and Ephraim, each getting a portion. And so there's really 13 tribes as you look at the division of this land, because the Levites didn't get any of the land. They, they are allowed to live on it, but they don't possess it as their own possession. So there are 13 tribes that are described over here in Ezekiel, and that's significant that um, God had always planned to divide this land according to what we see here in Ezekiel. That was all in his grand plan from the very beginning. Sorry, I said David, didn't I? I meant Joseph had two sons, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, So all the way back to even when Jacob was alive, there were really 13 tribes. And did they know that the tribe of Levi wasn't going to get any land? Um, Maybe, maybe not. Um, We saw that a little bit when we were in Joshua of them taking property and lands being given um, but never through all of that study did we see the entire land of Israel being under control of Israel. It's very clear as we went through Joshua that it, Joshua on his deathbed says that you need to continue to take land. You need to continue to be patient and let God give it to you as he had said, little by little. And Joshua, while laying on his deathbed, already knew that that would not happen. Because God, in the, in the, um, when he visited both Moses and Joshua, told them that they're not going to obey me, that they're going to go astray as soon as Joshua is dead. And so Joshua laying on his deathbed, giving them the right instructions, knowing they were not going to follow them. And so never in all of that history that we walk through did we see Israel taking all the land? And even when you get to the three kings of Israel, uh, Saul and David and Solomon, the only three kings over united Israel, never did they take all of the land that was available to them that God had promised to give to them. And then, of course, after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two, the northern and the southern. The northern, 150 years later, goes into captivity. And then we get to Ezekiel. And we see the destruction of the southern kingdom, of Judah, um, being con- you know, totally wiped out. And so in all of these things, our purpose has been to understand about the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, in this chapter, we get details about that. We, I mean, you have to go all the way to the last chapter of Ezekiel before you get those details and so that's why we've walked through this book verse by verse. In, Go ahead. Can I, in other words, take you too far off portion of this
1: question, but it's something I've been trying to sort through in my mind as I examine the, just the 68 references in the New Testament, specifically the kingdom of God. Was. Right.
0: Right. And there's no doubt that, that there there is a
1: a the spiritual kingdom the believer is here right now. Is it? Have you ever thought about in the millennial reign there is a, a a physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Right. You see that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, but yet in this millennial reign, there is this kingdom with Christ reigning and the saints ruling with him, reigning with him, and yet outside of Israel, by all appearances, there is an awful lot that looks like the world we're currently living in. And
0: then there's the ultimate kingdom, like right? the new, yeah. the new how do you I look at it it this way. I mean, the kingdom was at hand when Jesus Christ was here because the king was here, right? Right. And, I mean, he was the king even in his flesh as a man. But, you know, Paul, in writing to the Colossians, he said, uh, thanks be to God that he has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness or from the... um, Yeah, what is that? Um, Transfer you from the... It doesn't say kingdom of darkness, does it? (laughs) Should know this, right? Preach this. But I know it says this, and transfer you to the kingdom of his beloved son, domain of darkness, and transfer you to the kingdom of his beloved son so the kingdom exists he has to lead us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom King. of his beloved son so, so we have to past tense verb so if you place faith in Jesus Christ you have been moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son so the kingdom has to exist now Right, because Paul is writing about it existing now. So there is a kingdom of God that is, exists but is not manifested on this physical earth in the way that it will be in the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, and the reason for this, the reason that God does it physically, I believe, in the millennial kingdom is for vindication of his name because he gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if he doesn't fulfill them, then he's a liar, which was not possible. Well, there's two pieces to that. There's the land promise, but then, and then there's the promises to Israel, but then there's the, the mandate to
1: Israel to take it to all the nations.
0: Right. right and and if you think about it the apostles were all Jews and so the reason you and I believe today by the ordination of God he dispersed them but it was Jews who took the message so they did fulfill what God said they would do which is take the 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 word take the Kingdom to all nations that has been done, but it took God's ordained plan in order to accomplish it. Which was bringing disaster into Israel. Right, and and the well, and the reason for that judgment is for punishment of the Israelites for all not being obedient to God, and even you know people get hung up on. Um, the Romans 2, where it says that all those who are Israel are not Israel, and they get bound up in that, and know what that means, the church has replaced Israel, and all these other, well, think about it, even here in Ezekiel, at the very beginning of the establishment of the millennial kingdom, God judges one sheep, that's an Israelite, against another, calls out the leaders, and those who are fat and have trampled the water and pushed others with their horns, not true believers, and removes them from the land of Israel and from the kingdom. So even there, you see the fulfillment of what is written over in Romans, where it says that all Israel is not Israel. You even see it here in Ezekiel, where God calls out. So it's not like you have to As we've talked many times, let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. You don't have to do that, because that's not what the scriptures do. The scriptures... That's right. I mean, it's it's all in the Old Testament. You couldn't see it clearly. They saw it only dimly, no doubt. And the reason for the New Testament is to make it broad and, and perfectly clear in the light. So that's why we, all these things that we've talked about are important. And the way you view them is important um, because it gives you right perspective about the kingdom of God. Well,
1: it's, it's, there's three big, there's, there's Christ revealed to Israel and they rejected him. Right. There's Christ coming and dying on a cross and now the church. And what, what do you see the church visible doing at the end of the age? Apostlesizing. Yeah. They no longer hold the truth that they were once taught. So you see the same fading away in the church, this side of the cross, and then you get to the millennial reign, and you have Christ reigning on his throne, and you have a whole world filled with
0: what? Unbelievers, yeah. And unbelievers. Yeah, it, there's even sin in Israel, in the human saints that are there, because if you remember... It talks about the prince who is one of the chief leaders in all of Israel during the millennial kingdom. He's responsible for all the sacrifices, yet he has to offer a sin sacrifice for himself because he's sinful. Just as you and I today with the kingdom of God being in it, and yet human, we still sin. And that'll be true in the millennial kingdom. Even in Israel, there will be sin and in the nations outside of Israel, which we don't see in Ezekiel, there are mostly unbelievers because life goes on during the millennial kingdom. Now, they're reigned with righteousness by those of the church, and so there is a level of righteousness in the world that doesn't exist today. There is no wars because they're the leaders of all those nations who are the church won't allow there to be any wars. They're all in the family of God. They're in glorified bodies. But there's still humans all over the whole planet that don't believe in Jesus Christ, yet will give him honor. Sort of like people today on Easter will go to church, right? Because it's the right thing to do, and yet they don't believe. And so, in a way, they're giving Christ honor for his sacrifice and his resurrection, but they don't believe. They think they believe, but they don't. All Israel is not Israel. Same thing. Read John chapter 8. If you to put a big title on that chapter, you could title it, The Unregenerate Believer. That's exactly what Jesus, he is those of you who believe in me, but... And then John pushes against you and says, why don't they believe? Because it's not been granted to them to believe. Well, it brings Colossians 1.13 <laughs> back in. We are transferred out of the domain land, meaning our Father, prior
1: to regeneration, was who? Thank you. Yeah. You are of your Father, the devil, it's, until I see
0: And, and I believe that if you don't take the perspective of Ezekiel that we've been walking through for all these weeks, you won't get that perspective of what we're talking about right now. You just won't get there because it's all, it's all just um, spiritual. It's all just speaking of vague things that we can't understand clearly. It's all just, um, you know, it's not real it's just in the spiritual realm. And I, and you miss all that we're talking about. And one,
1: one tends to glorify man. <laughs> and the Bible says there's only one. And it's the second Adam. And he did everything. That's why we throw the crown right back to him. Because the only reason we receive it is because
0: he, Ephesians 2, 10 does. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this perspective is, is critical that when we go to Daniel and we walk through Daniel and then we ultimately go to Revelation and walk through Revelation, uh, without this perspective of what we're talking about now, it, you get all wrapped around the axles. Okay, Ezekiel 48, first seven verses. God, in this chapter, fulfills what he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and we'll see it in in detail. And I just want to read some of these. So in the first seven verses, seven of the tribes get their land. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's about the division of the specific land that God outlines at the end of chapter 47. And so beginning in 48.1, now these are the names of the tribes from the northern extremity beside the way of Hethion and Labu Hamath, as far as Hazar Hazarinan, at the border of De- Damascus, toward the north, beside Hamath, running from east to west, Dan, one portion. So there's the first portion, is to the son of Jacob, Dan, and his tribe. Beside the border of Dan, from the east side to the west side, Asher, one point, portion. Beside the border of Asher from the east side to the west side, Naphtali, one portion. Beside the border of Naphtali from the east to the west side, Manasseh, one portion. Beside the border of Manasseh from the east side to the west side, Ephraim, one portion. Beside the border of Ephraim from the east side to the west side, Reuben, one portion. Beside the border of Reuben From the east side to the west side, Judah, one portion. So you see two of those tribes are the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those two replacing the tribes of Joseph and Levi, so that you still remain with 12 tribes. Okay, and here seven of them are given their land. The reason Dan's is described in detail as it is, is because Dan is in the northernmost extreme of the land, and so he has to, God has to outline what is the northern border of Dan. He then moves southward through six other tribes, and he doesn't have to give much detail because they're bordered by their brother's borders, and they just keep going southward all the way down to Judah. East and west, they're bordered by bodies of water on the West side by the Mediterranean Sea, on the east side by the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And so that's the east to the west. So you don't have to give much detail because there's water there. And so that's what God does. And he, he goes through these tribes specifically, saying, this land is yours. Now, he then goes into the 25,000 By 25,000 cubits because that's what's next to the south. So for a moment, skip over that special land and you move down to verse 23 and you see the other five tribes given. As for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west side, Benjamin one portion. Beside the border of Benjamin, from the east side to the west side, Simeon one portion. Beside the border of Simeon, from the east side to the west side, Issachar, one portion. Beside the border of Issachar, from the east side to the west side, Zebulun, one portion. Beside the border of Zebulun, from the gate, from the east side to the west side, Gad, one portion. And then he gives the southern border of Gad again, because that's the extreme southern border of Israel. And so again, it's not a body of water there. He has to detail the cities of which belong to Gad and those which don't. So God gives the northern border, the southern border, and then you got water on the east and the west. And you notice he very specifically gives to each of these one portion. And you go, well, why? So what? What's important about that? Well, I'll come back in just a second. Verses that we skipped... We don't really need to spend much time. That's verses 8 through 22, because we've talked a lot about these verses. This is the 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits, I believe somewhere around eight and a half miles by eight and a half miles of area where the northern 10,000 by 25,000 goes to the Levites. The next 10,000 by 25,000 goes to the Zadokian Levite priests, those who are the ones who minister near to God, in the middle of their land, right smack dab in the middle of the 25,000 by 25,000 cubits is the the, the tabernacle, the temple that we spent many verses looking at. So right in the middle of the Zadokian um land is where the temple is so they don't have to go very far to go to work they just walk to the temple and then the levitical priests who minister in the temple but not near to god they live to the north a little bit and then the last five thousand acres to the south is the city and you know we don't see the name of the city until the last verse of Ezekiel. So we'll look at that today. But that city is 4,500 cubits by 4,500 cubits. And then on the outside of that, there's 250 cubits of clear land. So you get 5,000 cubits if you add 4,500 to 250 and 250. So their land is 5,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. And the land on each side of that city is used to grow crops, and the ministers of the city raise those crops, and we'll see that here at the end. So you've got this special portion of land that is not as big as the other portions of land, but it's holy unto God. And the Levites live there, but it's not their land, it's God's land. It's called God's portion as you walk through these verses and you see it detailed. And then on either side of that, because as we said, that's only eight and a half miles or so. The, the, if you go from the Mediterranean Sea all the way over to the Dead Sea, is 45 to 50 miles. So there's a lot of property on the outside of that 25,000 acres, or 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. And you remember that belongs to The prince, that's where the prince keeps all his tribes, that's where he apparently has a bunch of barns that he puts grain into, because all of Israel brings him grain. You remember according to those measures that we saw a couple of chapters ago? It's not a lot per person, but you got so many people and the land is so abundant that what they bring to the prince is plentiful, more than enough for him to provide for all the sacrifices that take place in the tabernacle. And so we've seen all that system. We don't need to spend a lot of time walking through those verses again, because they they say the exact same thing. Matter of fact, we referenced some of these verses as we were going through the other sections of scripture that speak about this 25,000 by 25,000. So all of that is in chapter 48. So those specific portions of God, portions of the tribes, portions to the um, prince are all detailed in 48, and there's a reason for that. You read through all of this, and you see the division of the land, and yeah, it's detailed, and you just kind of read it and say, okay, we understand what is happening here, right? I mean, we understand how the land would be divided. Each tribe would have its own land, that the temple would be in the middle, that the people would come to the temple to worship, that you had four festivals during the year. I mean, we understand all that. That's just what is happening. And as I've said, these last eight chapters of Ezekiel, it's really nine chapters of Ezekiel, are just descriptive of what happens in the Millennial Kingdom. Nothing actually takes place other than God entering the temple by the people it's just descriptive of what happens and it's just so much detail and you go why is this then significant why would we spend so much time and go through this painstakingly looking at the details because this is the fulfillment of the abrahamic covenant nowhere previous to this chapter is all the land divided and given to Israel such that they possess it and live in it and control it and rule over it nowhere in all of scripture does that happen except for here in this chapter this is the fulfillment of the of the promises that God gave to Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and Jacob. And without this chapter, God does not fulfill his promises to those patriarchs. So that's why it's significant. That's why we've spent the time studying it. Because, I mean, there's a lot of debate today, right? Did God ever fulfill the promises that he gave to Abraham? And if he didn't, then what does that mean? And so we go to allegory and we try to come up and rescue God from making promises that he never fulfilled, literally, when there's no need to do that because right here in chapter 48, he fulfills his promises. Now, it doesn't happen until the end of the age, but it does happen. And that's been God's intention all along because here in this chapter, is the vindication of God's name, of what he promised and is now fulfilled. He is able to do what he promised. He is sovereign over his creation. And yet he lets man play with it until you get to the end here. And then for a thousand years, it's in your face, I am the sovereign of my creation and you will give me glory, and you will respect my name. And that's what's going on here. For a thousand years, Israel lives on this land. Jesus Christ reigns from the city, and I'll show you why I believe that in just a second. And God is in the tabernacle, in the nave and in the holy of holies. And people will come from the nations into this land for the specific purpose of giving the king of glory honor and recognizing him for who he is. And the reason they'll do that was because the church reigns over them and will lead them in parade to give him that glory. Go ahead. Doesn't the land all the way eastward to the Euphrates? It does, but that's desert. Yes. So... Well, and apparently even then, um, the will bloom like a rose. well, I think that's the land of Israel um, because it's, de- it's desert today also, but in this time, it is plentiful. And remember the river that we talked about that flows from underneath the throne of God and flows to the east, stops at the Jordan River in the Dead Sea. It does not go all the way over to the Euphrates. So that land, I believe, even in this time is uninhabited. There's no one living there. Now clearly on the Euphrates River, there will be people living. There always have been. I think there will be here in this time because that's a very fertile area. But it's a long way from the Jordan River over to the Euphrates long way. You remember it took those who escaped from Nebuchadnezzar, only a few, in Jerusalem, it took them over a year to get to Ezekiel and tell him that the city is fallen. So it's a long way, and it's a tough, it's a tough path. So, but this chapter is significant because it is the fulfillment of those promises given to Abraham when God took him out under the stars and uh, showed him first all his children and then took him up into the land and said, all this land is yours, this is the land that's just been detailed. And so if this chapter doesn't exist, God doesn't fulfill his promises. If the millennial kingdom doesn't exist, God doesn't fulfill his promises. And that's where you go to allegory, right? Many of our brothers and sisters have to run to allegory to save God because he didn't mean the physical land, he meant something that's spiritual. I don't think so. When you take a guy and you stand him on land and you say, look over here, look over here, look over here, look over here, and that land will be yours, it's unmistakable what he's saying, that we're talking about physical land. And you remember way back, chapter 34, 35, God says that he's jealous for the land. This land is special to God. And he uses it for his own glory here in the millennial kingdom. David, the thing that's amazing about what you just said is that this, this perspective, this allegorical perspective has been
1: embraced and taught and diligently thought through. Yeah. Right. We could no longer reconcile their perspective to what
0: the Bible actually taught. Right. They abandoned it and created a, a massive allegorical teaching that held the that, that most of the believers, true believers, on the planet today hold to that theology. If you don't, you're in a small minority. But if you go back to the church fathers of the first century and the second century, and you read their writings, they did not hold to that. They held to the literal fulfillment of what is taught in the scriptures. And only through time and the, res- and the um, building of the Catholic Church and then the push against the Catholic Church during the Reformation do you come up with this system of allegory that, Tries to use the New Testament to reinterpret the Old Testament. And it launched when, when there was a belief
1: that literally 6,000 is a day. Right. Okay, so creation was seven days, six days, 6,000 years, and when they measured from what they believed to be the creation, and we passed the 6,000 year, which they all believed was the point at which the tribulation was going to come. Right.
0: Well, and, you know, how old is the earth, right? I'm a new earth guy. I'm a very new earth guy. I'm a 6,000-year guy, not a 10,000-year. So, because of what the scripture teaches. And uh, we'll talk about that another day. The last six verses of the chapter of Ezekiel. This is where Ezekiel ends. And he talks about that city that's in that 5,000 by 5,000 cubit area. These are the exits of the city. On the north side, 4,500 cubits by measurement. And you'll notice in your notes that I put 4,000. That's wrong. It's 45. Shall be the gates of the city named for the tribes of Israel. Three gates toward the north the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and look at this, and one of the gate of Levi. So Levi, not Manasseh and Ephraim, because you'll notice that Joseph is here also. On the east side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates. The gate of Joseph, one. The gate of Benjamin, one. The gate of Dan, one. So there's Joseph and not his sons. On the south side, 4,500 cubits by measurement, shall be three gates, the gate of Simeon, one, the gate of Issachar, one, and the gate of Zebulun, one. On the west side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates, the gate of Gad, one, the gate of Asher, one, the gate of Naphtali, one. And then here's the name of the city. The city shall be 18,000 cubits Roundabout, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Now, we know where God is, right? He's in the nave in the Holy of Holies because he came in through the eastern gates of the t- tabernacle and took residence there. It says that he put his feet up there, just meaning that's his home. And so if the city is called the city of the Lord, that can only be Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of David, reigning from this city over Israel and then the whole world. And so that's why I believe this city is where Jesus Christ is, because it's the city of the, the, where the Lord is. The Lord is there. And we know that's not God the Father, because he's in the tabernacle. So the, the, the word is Yahweh. Yeah. Yahweh Shabbat. Right. So the Lord is there. And um, so this city, don't know what the name of the city is other than the Lord is there. Is it Jerusalem or is it near where Jerusalem is today? Not exactly sure. Okay, you can't be 100% sure of where this city is, but we know it exists. And we know that's where Jesus Christ reigns from. And all of this land is holy unto the Lord. And so these are, this is a very significant chapter. This ties a bow on our study of God's land plan. What did God, why did God promise the land? And what did he ultimately do to fulfill his promises when he gave the land? Here it is, in living color. And this is what we spent 44 weeks leading to showing that only here is this fulfilled. And without a millennial kingdom, a literal millennial kingdom, these promises are never fulfilled. When God stood Abraham on the land and said, look around you, this is yours. Other than here, those don't get fulfilled. So we're done with this first portion of our many-year study. So next week, we'll, Lord willing, move to the opening verses of Daniel. Now I'll tell you that we won't actually get into the Scripture next week if things go as I plan for them to go. We'll spend a couple of weeks doing kind of what we did at the beginning of the study of the land, laying out... Daniel. Who wrote it? When was it written? What are the significant passages? What are the themes of the book? What are the difficulties in the book? Um, And just that general description so that as we study it, we get the right time frame and we get the right perspective. Because I'll tell you, the most popular belief on the planet is that Daniel was written in the 200s. Daniel was not written in the 200s; it was written close to 600 BC, um, a little bit after that. And so we'll see that in in as we go through the study of Daniel. But that is not what most people believe. So you have to, R 300, yeah, you have to deal with that, okay? And we will, in in detail. Why, why do I suppose it is that they believe it was written then? No, no, no. I've got a conclusion. The allegory, allegorical method that is so prominent in the church ignores the teachings of the 1st and 2nd century fathers. Did they think they were wrong? They weren't as enlightened as the New Testament people were and so the New Testament has to reinterpret the Old Testament. I'm telling you, that is foundational to the view that all of this is allegory. That's is that is that holding to that hermeneutic that the New Testament reinterprets what was written in the Old Testament, and you have to run from that. It interprets it as reinterprets. It expands it. That sounds like a gnostic. A gnostic. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go there because I do believe there are many people who hold to the allegorical view, who are true believers, who will be with us in the kingdom of God when it is after the millennial reign, when it is literal and we're in the city with God, I think they'll be there. Right. How you you could indeed for them the chronological framework in Genesis foreshadowed the entire eschatological unfolding of world history. That's the second key. So keep that your are what they held tightly to this. They saw You're talking about the first and second century church fathers, yes. Right. And it was this ushering in of the Catholic view that then when the six thousand
1: years were perceived to have not been accurate, the whole thing collapsed into this allegorical
0: explanation. And what's the name of that book, Andy? Coming to
1: grips with Genesis.
0: (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful resource. Coming to grips with Genesis. Okay.
1: Right, and that's what
0: it felt. right, and you can't pick the time because no man knows of the day except for the Father. Now, I personally believe that Jesus Christ knows that day today. He didn't know it when he was on earth and he spoke those words. That was true, but he's in glory now, and I think he and the Father are just waiting for the right time, and he does know when the day is, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Thanks for your time. We're done.